You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. We will turn to Jude, the book of Jude. We'll pick it up in verse 17. So Jude 17, while you're finding your place, um, uh, parents, I just want you to know that uh, you have um, a lot of reasons to be proud of your kids, our teenagers that I got to spend last week with. It was an absolute joy to be with them in the mountains. A little harder to come back down in this hot weather. I have to admit that. Uh, lows, 60s, highs about 80, evenings, beautiful. Um, but what was even more beautiful was watching uh, your teens serve uh, Watauga County in a whole lot of different ways. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of drama. Uh, normally you have some drama, didn't have hardly any drama with this group of kids. Uh, they have a lot of energy, I'll give them that. Um, but they did a great job last week. I'm very proud of them and quite frankly, I would go anywhere in the world with that group we had last week to uh, proclaim the gospel and do missions. Anywhere they want to go, I'd be honored to go with them. And church, you should be proud of them as well. So I'm very thankful to have them as part of our church. Give them a round of applause this morning. Good morning. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Jude writing, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garments stained by flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, we pause at this moment to just praise you and thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you, Father, for all the ways that you're working in this fellowship. Thank you for all the ways that I saw your hand work last week, for the lives that were touched, for the lives that were changed. Now, Father, guide us in your word this morning. And just, Father, we ask for your guidance and wisdom. Give us clarity in what your word says. But, Father, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but be doers also. That we would not just hear something, but we would apply it and live it out through your strength and through your power, through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I've never been a, a big uh, Dallas Cowboys fan. I know we have at least one. <laughs> I know we have at least one. Now, don't be hating on him. Other than that, he's an awesome guy. But no, nonetheless, I've never been a big Dallas Cowboys fan, but when I throw this name, you're, you're going to recognize it. Uh, Tom Landry. Uh, Tom Landry, considered to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, NFL football coach of all time. 29 seasons in the NFL. And you may not know this about him, but he had a deep faith in Christ. And that eventually led him to serve on the board of directors for Dallas Theological Seminary. And at the time that Landry was serving on the board of directors for this Christian seminary, uh, Chuck Swindoll was either the president or I think he was the president at this time when this conversation happened. So Chuck Swindoll, very interested in, in Tom Landry's coaching career, asked Tom Landry one day, well, how is it that you guys have been able to build such incredible teams with such incredible athletes? How, how do you select your players? I mean, you, you've got a whole, whole uh, field of contenders trying to get on your team. How do you consistently choose the best players? And Tom Landry said that there were, there were five things, five things that that his leadership team would look for in a potential player for their team. And you would imagine that because football coaches or any coach wants to win the game and wants to win the championship, you would imagine that the number one thing out of the five things they're looking for in any potential athlete would be speed. Uh, of course, depending on what position they're looking for, it may be, it may be size and strength. Uh, if it's a quarterback, their ability to, to throw and connect with receivers. 
to put, put scores on the scoreboard. Um, if it's a running back, you know, you're looking for specific characteristics. So you, you would think that the, the number one quality would have something to do with their, their athletic ability. But Tom Landry said that the number one characteristic that he looked for in a player on his team was not ability to play, but character. Their character. What kind of people are they? What, what, kind, of men, what kind of man are they? What, how do they live their life? What's, do they have any ethical standards in their life? Well, this obviously raised another question that I'm glad Chuck Swindoll asked because Chuck then goes to the next question, which is a little harder, and he says, well, wait a minute. If, if, if your number one requirement or your number one characteristic is the character of the player, then what if, what if you have, what if you have a goat? You know what I mean by that, right? Greatest of all time. You've got the, the greatest receiver who's looking to come and join your team. And let's say that all the way back into his college career, he's been putting lots of touchdowns, touch, uh, scores on the on scoreboard. Let's, let's say that he is considered to be the greatest receiver that you could possibly. He wants to come and play for you. And let's say that he has all of the score. He has all of the, the, the uh, physical attributes. He has all of the abilities that you're looking for in a football player but his character stinks. Now, you know, why, you know why Chuck Swindoll is asking that question? Because if character is number one, then it doesn't matter if you have an excellent player with excellent physical capabilities and excellent run times and excellent, well, ability on the field. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter if his character is truly important. So Chuck Swindoll asked Tom Landry, he said, what do you do? If you have that kind of a caliber player, but his character stinks, and Tom Landry simply said, we do not hire him. This is a guy who wants to win championships. But for Tom Landry, at the end of the day, it was about the player's heart. So Jude has been helping us to see that the church has a gift that's been given to it. Certainly Christ, the Holy Spirit, but, but the gift that Jude focuses on is the gospel. This common salvation that, that we have received, not, not a common in that it's, it's just unimportant, but common in that every single person that's come into the kingdom of God has come the same way. And it's through, a, through faith in what Jesus did on a cross in his resurrection that it doesn't matter if you find a believer, a disciple of Jesus in A.D. 200, and in 1,000, the year 1,200, 1988, or 2023, they all have a common factor, and that is they all came to faith through what Jesus did on that cross, and their life was changed as a result. But you would also say that, that there's been a faith handed down once and for all, and that this faith, this gospel, this journey we're on in following Jesus, that not only is it important, but it's valuable, and it is worth defending. You do not have the opportunity to change it, to add to it, to subtract from it. It was once given to us, and our goal and our job and our mission is to give it away to others. But it's worth defending. And then Jude says, there are some who are trying to creep in unnoticed, and they have as their goal to tear down. And last week, we saw some of the characteristics of what these wolves in sheep's clothing, well, how you can figure out that they are actually a wolf. They present themselves as sheep. They, they present themselves as being just like you, but in fact, their motivation, their desires are far removed from Christ and the Holy Spirit. What Jude's going to point us to today is that, okay, we have this gospel. It's, it's worth protecting. We have people who are seeking to tear it down, and, and now we can, we can kind of figure out who they are. Now Jude is going to say, now this is what I want you to do in response. And, and what Jude says here is actually quite surprising. Because what you would think that Jude would say about how to deal with these false teachers, these wolves, you would think that Jude would, would say something else about what, how to deal with them. But in fact, he goes a totally different direction. What I need you to understand this morning, and I believe what Jude is saying clearly is, your character, who you are, who you are on the inside always comes to the outside. Last week we said that 
The Jew was concerned about two things. How can you evaluate those who you are allowing to influence your life? There's two ways. You look at their character and you look at the content of their message. And through that, you can determine, is this a sheep? Is this, is this someone who is truly following Jesus or are they actually a wolf? Now, what you've got to understand is that wherever your heart is, whatever's in your heart, well, it eventually comes out in your actions. You can't hide it. If you've truly been born again, if you've, if you've surrendered your life to Christ and he's given you a new life on the inside, a new heart, Make sure you understand that it's always going to come out in how you act. No matter how many masks you put on, if, if your heart is cold and indifferent, if your heart is far from Jesus, if you've never surrendered to Christ, you may be putting on a religious Baptist Hyde Park mask this morning, but make no mistake about it, around your family, around your friends, they know who you really are because you can't hide it. You can't get bitter water from a fresh well. And your heart the Bible describes that the New Testament writers describe your heart as like a well. And when you send a bucket down into that well and you pull out some water, it reveals where your heart really is. By the words you use, by your actions. Is, is your faith something you turn on on Sunday morning and off on Monday? If so, then it points to a, an issue with your heart so Jude is going to teach us how to deal with the wolf in sheep's clothing. What, what are we to do as a church? Now, the first thing that Jude is going to point our attention to is that what's going on and how the church has been attacked for all these years, it should not be a surprise to the church. So the first thing Jude is going to draw our attention to is he's going to kind of summarize the characteristics of the wolf in sheep's clothing, but he also wants to draw to our attention that we've been told that what's happening and what's going to continue to happen, it's not only going to increase, but we were warned about it. Look at verse 17. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So what's amazing about this is just like last week we saw Jude use an outside biblical resource he used something outside the Bible to prove a point in the text we looked at last week. Today, and what we're looking at there, we find out that Jude has been influenced by the other writers of the New Testament at this early stage in the church. Jude says, hey, you've heard what the other apostles have written. You have heard what they have taught. Even Jesus himself said that in the last days, there will be an increase and attacks upon those who follow him and they're gathering as a body of believers called the church. So we should be surprised. This last days, what is he talking about? Is, is, is the last days the last time? Is that something that's still off in the future or is it right now? The last days begun at the very moment when Jesus ascended back to the Father after his resurrection. The last days began right then. You know how I know that? It's because as the disciples are looking up, watching Jesus ascend back to the Father in Acts chapter 1, there's a couple of angels that appear. And these, these men and women are just standing there, they're staring into the clouds. And they're just, they're just frozen in awe in that moment. And the angel looks at them and says, hey, snap out of it. Remember, this same Jesus that you saw go up to the Father is going to come again in like manner. In other words, the angel says to those around him, get to work because there's the, your time is limited. Your time is short. The last days are upon you. Get to the work of witnessing about Jesus. And those same writers, those same people that were on that hillside that day, wrote the New Testament, Peter and James and John. And you know what all of them are saying? They were looking for Jesus to return in their day. And, if, and as we know, he didn't. So how much closer are we to that today than they were? He says that in the last days, we're living in the last days, there will be scoffers. You see that word scoffers? Now, previously, in the previous verses, we saw that same word, scoffing. And if you look at the Greek behind your English translation, it's the same word we use for blasphemy. In fact, some of your English translations use blasphemy instead of scoffing. And we said that blasphemy is the exact opposite of worshiping God, okay? But interestingly enough, at this point, Jude uses a different word for scoffing. It's only used twice. It's used here, 
and it's used in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I think Peter was the influence that Jude had or received to write what he's writing. Now, theologians argue, did, did Jude influence Peter or did Peter influence Jude? I have no idea. But I do know that Jude had access to Peter's writings. And here in this verse, he says almost exactly the same thing that Peter said. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that there will be scoffers who will come in the last days. And in Peter's letter, it's connected to those who were scoffing at the idea that Jesus Christ was going to return. They're making fun of it. They're, they're laughing about it. They said, look, you've been saying that Jesus is going to return now for all these years, Peter, and it still hadn't happened. The church was under attack because they were being accused of lying about Jesus returning, using that to scare people. And Peter writes in that letter, he says, look, a thousand years is a day to God. It's the way you're thinking about time and the way God thinks about time is two separate things. Make sure you understand that Jesus is going to come back and you're in the last days. And in those last days, the people who hate the church and the people who hate Christianity and the people who hate Jesus are going to increase. Are we there today? Has it increased? You better believe it has. This idea of scoffing is, is making fun of, making a joke out of Jesus and the faith. He goes on and he gives us a little bit of a, a summary of these wolves in sheep's clothing, these scoffers. He says they're following their own ungodly passions. In other words, what drives them, just like we talked last week, what drives them is their flesh. What benefits them? Greed. Their sexuality living outside of God's boundaries. They're living ungodly. They're living as though God doesn't exist. But notice what else he says. He says, it is these, verse 19, who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So Jude takes this profile of a wolf in sheep's clothing, and you know what he, he, he brings it all down to one single point, and this is the most important. He says they are devoid of the Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? What he means is that these people who present themselves as sheep, who are actually wolves, you need to understand that they are not sheep and they are not born again. They are not believers. They are not following Jesus. To be devoid of the Spirit is to be the very essence of lost. So yes, they're ungodly. Yes, they're greedy. Yes, they take advantage of people. Why do they do this? This is not because they're Christians who've kind of gotten off the path. They are lost people portraying themselves, well, as religious people. Oh, I've run into those folks. I've met some of those folks. Uh, I have the opportunity to... Uh, to help out with the North Carolina Baptist Convention within the realm of church revitalization. That's a big term that just simply says that it's an opportunity to help churches that are, are struggling. There are 4,000 Southern Baptist churches in the state of North Carolina. And somewhere between 60 and 65% of those churches are in plateau, which means they've not grown in a long time, or they're in steep decline near death, which means a whole lot of churches are about to close their doors. And so through the convention, I have an opportunity to talk with these pastors, if they have a pastor. You know what I found out? You see, you, you might think that the reason the churches are in decline is because of some outside force, right? Some, uh, some group of people in the community who are, who are maybe out in the parking lot picketing with signs and yelling angry things at the church because some stand the church made upon its beliefs, Right? You might think that, that the church uh, is under attack by, by maybe people with mohawks and piercings all in their face who, who look like they hate the church, right? You know, you know what I found out? No, it's, it's, it's people who are on the inside who wear suits and ties. They're, they may have a title of deacon or they may have a title of music director. And they're wolves in sheep's clothing and nobody's ever called them out on it. And they're destroying the church from the inside out. This is exactly who Jude is warning us about. He's not warning us about the, the person you might think of with a pink mohawk with, with, who looks very different, who are coming in to try to knock the windows out of the building. No, he says, they come in with a suit and tie on. They come in with their Sunday best because they want to fit in. And they want to fit in because they want to destroy. Because it's all about them. 
And I talk to these pastors, and these pastors are brokenhearted. These pastors have been trying their best to lead the church forward, but there's some family in the church who has a stranglehold on the ministry, and nobody's willing to call them out. The pastor's about to quit. Not just quit the church, but quit ministry. Because he's fed up. He's been slandered. He's been stabbed in the back. He's questioning everything that he went to seminary and everything about his calling. He's questioning it all. And I talk to him on a regular basis. You see, what, what, what Jude is saying is you've got to get this clear. These people are not following Jesus. They never have. They put on a mask. They put on a suit. They put on a dress. They walk in to present themselves as though they're just like you. And over time, you find out then it's not about Christ, it's about them. And there are churches all across this state that are about to close their doors because they've been dealing with that for 10, 15, or even 20 years. And it's destroyed their testimony, it's destroyed their fellowship, it's divided the church, and there's just a few people hanging on, and they're about to walk away. Jesus says that ungodliness, pride, arrogance, greed, there's a reason that's coming out in their life. It's because they don't have the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit living in them, which means they've never been adopted by God, which means they've never been saved. They're lost. They're religious people who are lost. He says that a life that is surrendered to Christ is going to be changed. And I think what, what Jude points us to here is he finally he gives us this final summary of who these wolves are. Here's what you need to understand is that a person who's been a person who's been saved, a person who's surrendered to Christ, that is going to come out of your life. If your heart has been changed by Christ, it will come out of your life. In the way you talk, in the way you live, the way you treat other people. Nicodemus came to Jesus late in the night. This is in John 3. And Nicodemus had been trying his whole life to keep the law because he thought that's what would get him in good with God. So he's been, he's been working hard. And I believe Nicodemus probably was working as hard as anybody to keep the law. But there was something missing in his life. So he, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he didn't want to get seen by his other Pharisee leaders, right? That'd be bad to be caught with the guy they don't like, the guy that they're wanting to put to death. So he goes to him at night and he basically he's trying to understand how is it that you teach so different, that, you, that you're so different than, than everything I said. And you seem to have the words of God, and you, you, you're able to do these miracles. So there's something about you that's different than anything I've seen in my life. So he goes to him in the night, and, and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, okay, um, go into my mother's womb, be born. How does that work, Jesus? He's thinking physical. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You must be born of water and the Spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, you have to have a new heart because the heart that's inside of you is broken, it's cold, it's lost. And you see, there's no amount of works you can do, Nicodemus, that'll ever bring you to a place of having a new beginning. You can't, you can't bring that up yourself. You can't, you can't fix yourself from the outside. Something's got to happen on the inside. You see, your character's flawed because you have a flawed heart. And your character is representing what's inside of you. You're, you're, the, the way you're living represents who you really are. No matter how hard you try to, try to hide it. So Nicodemus, you have to have a new heart. The heart you've got is broken. It's, it's sin-cursed. It's, well, it's rebellious. And no amount of keeping the law is ever going to fix that. You see, this new life, this new birth, this, this moment with Christ where we surrender to Christ and and he changes our life. It is something that comes out of our life, even in the earliest moments of following Jesus. That something's changed, something's different. You're a new person. You can't explain it. You don't know all the theology to go along with it. You just know that you're not the same person you were. You can't do the same things you used to do. There's a there's now this, this inhibitor of, of the Holy Spirit in your life that says you, you can't go down that path. The, the point I'm trying to make is, is what Jude is making is that your character, who you are, is, re, is representative of what's on the inside. And it always comes out. It comes out in your speech, comes out in your actions, and it reveals who you really are. True faith is observable. True faith is tangible. True faith is discernible. 
if Christ has brought you from death unto life, even if you've gotten off the path, the reality is if you were truly born again and you got a new heart inside of you, it's going to come out. And equally true, if your heart has never been changed, if you've never been saved, you've never been born again, I don't care how many masks you put on. I don't, know, I don't care how many denominations you join. I don't care how much money you donate. I don't care how much good deeds you do. Your heart is cold and indifferent, and it comes out in how you live. So Jude says, these are who those wolves are. They're devoid of the Spirit. Verse 20, I want you to notice this. In verse 20, he says, but you, notice that. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now, what Jude's going to do here is, is as soon as he says that word, but, we're going to now shift to, all right, believers, those of you who are truly part of the body of Christ, now let me speak to you a minute about how you're to deal with these wolves in sheep's clothing. And this is where the surprise comes. Because what I would expect Jude to say at this moment, he doesn't say. And the first thing he says is he says, okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, I need to talk to you for just a moment. And he says, the first thing that you need to be aware of is that your faith must be a growing, alive faith. Is your faith growing? So the question that Jude would ask as he prepares us to deal with wolves in sheep's clothing is this, is your faith growing? Is your faith growing? In other words, that faith once delivered to us by the saints. Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you, are, you, are, you, are you conforming more to the image of Christ now than you were when you first started? Let me, let me break that down. The way you live your life, is it becoming more like Christ now than it was 20 years ago when you first put your faith in Jesus? Is your faith growing or is it stagnant? Your faith was meant to mature. It was meant to grow. It was meant to bring you to a place where you look more like the one you're following. The whole idea of a disciple is one who is a learner of the one they're following. And as a result, the learner becomes to look more like the teacher. So if you are a disciple of Jesus over time, you are to look more like him in the way you live your life, the way you speak and the way you live and the choices you make and, and, how, and how you use the resources that God has given you. The longer you follow him, the more you look like him. This not, does not mean a, a state of perfection. It does not mean that you somehow arrive to where all of a sudden now you're just like Jesus. Now that comes later when you leave this life, but in this life, we miss the mark, we fall short. But let me ask you, in those moments when you miss the mark and you fall short, do you desire to get that right in your life? What are you aiming your life towards? Is your faith growing? If it's not, if you're no different today than you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago when you put your faith in Christ, there could be a significant heart problem going on with you. The scary thing about religion is, is that you can put on these layers and layers and layers of religion and it'll fool you into thinking that everything is okay when, in fact, it is not okay. How do we know the difference? How you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, the language you use when you walk on the job site tomorrow. If you could turn off your Christianity like a light switch and live just like the world, Monday through Saturday, only to flip that switch back on when you walk through that glass door back there, it very well may be that your heart has never been changed especially if you're not convicted about it, especially if you don't care, especially if it doesn't matter to you. If that's the case, the Bible describes you as being lost. And no amount of layering of religion will ever change that. Is your faith growing? Look at what he says in the next part of verse 20. He says, But beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and look at this, and praying in the Holy Spirit. I got to share this story with you because I think it helps. Uh, it's been about, it's probably been about a year ago. I had a, a, a small group of guys in the church. I'm not going to call them by name. Mostly young guys. And we were meeting together and we were just walking through the word together. And we were just doing some discipleship. And we were talking about prayer one night. And I think that we were, I think we were walking through one of the gospels or it might have been one of the letters, Paul's letters. But anyway, 
the, the context of what we were looking at that night was about prayer. And there was only three other guys in the room besides me, and we're talking about prayer. And I thought, you know what, we need to, we need to kind of hold each other accountable here. So I said, let's, let's do this. Let's set a goal for this coming week. We're going to set a goal that uh, we're going to pray at least 15 minutes every day. Okay, let's do that. 15 minutes every day, and we all kind of agreed to it. And so with the understanding that when we got back together the next Sunday, the first thing we're going to talk about is how that went. That's called accountability, right? And that's an integral part of discipleship. So a week later, we get back together, and we're upstairs in my office, and we're talking, and, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into the Word. And finally, I raised the question, well, how did your prayer life go this week? You know, we all made the commitment last week, we're going to pray 15 minutes a day. How did it go? It's kind of silent. Nobody wanted to speak up. And because we had fostered a good relationship between us, we, we could share things in that room together that we might not share anywhere else and because we had a trust among us. And finally, uh, one of them spoke up and said, well, you know, I, I, think, I think I only prayed two days this week and, and I didn't do 15 minutes. So I, I didn't keep my commitment. Like, okay, hey, it's all right, no problem. Let's, let's talk about that. So we, we've talked and we've gotten a word a little bit, talking, and finally... I'm so thankful for this brother. This brother, I was asking him why we find it so hard to pray. What, what is it about prayer time and setting that aside? What, what's some challenges we're facing? And one of these brothers spoke up and said, and I'll never forget it. He said, well, I just got to be honest. I think prayer is boring. Oh, don't you, oh, don't you act like that. Some of your mouths are dropping open. You've thought the same thing. You just weren't willing to say it, haven't you? Come on, let's be honest now. Take, take the mask off. Let's be honest for a moment. What that brother said in that room up there is what you thought before you just weren't willing to say it because, hey, I don't want to look irreligious, right? I don't want to look disrespectful. But the fact is, there's been times you sat down to pray and you were thinking more about the movie you watched on Netflix the night before. There were times you set time apart, maybe in the morning or night, to open God's Word, and you, look, you dozed off, didn't you? You dozed off. Guilty. You dozed off. You closed God's word and you checked the box. I've, I've done my devotion when, in fact, you just had a good nap. And maybe that's what you needed at that moment. But this brother said, you know, I, I just, I just got to be honest. I, I think prayer is boring. And I don't know what he was expecting from me. My old face lit up. I said, brother, I am so glad that you had the freedom to say that. Now, let's talk about that because this may shock you. There's been times in my life that it was boring with me as well. So, how do we, how do we, how do we deal with that? Is your prayer life vibrant? Jesus was approached by his disciples, and the disciples had heard Jesus pray, and the things that Jesus prayed was way different than what they heard the religious people praying. So the disciples come to Jesus and you see this in Luke's account, but also in Matthew 6. And Matthew 6 is part of the Sermon on the Mount, but in the background, the disciples were interested in knowing how Jesus, why Jesus prayed the way that he prayed. And, and so Jesus teaches them the model prayer. But before he teaches them the model prayer, he says to them this. He, he says something really interesting. He says, don't be guilty of, of going through the motions, praying the same old things over and over and over again. He said, that's, that's what the Gentiles do, and they're false gods. The idea was is that these Gentiles who were following any kinds of false gods, they just would repeat these phrases over and over and over to, to their gods. It was cold, and it was indifferent. There was no relationship dynamic there at all. And, and he said to, to them, don't be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees do the same thing. They come into the temple, and they just quote prayers and say empty words, but yet their heart is far from me. He says, don't, don't be guilty of vain repetition. You know, what, you know what Jesus was saying in that way, in that moment? He says, don't, don't be guilty of praying old, stale, dead prayer. It's a relationship between you and the Creator. And the Creator says to you, hey, come and spend some time with me. I already know what's on your heart, and let's talk. You see, you've learned some bad habits in the church. Some of those bad habits you've learned are these phrases that we just repeat to God. We don't even know what they mean. We're only saying them to check some box in our life somewhere, and there's no vibrant relationship. Let me, let me give you an illustration. What if you treated your husband or your wife that way? Let's go back to when you were dating. Let's go back to when you were dating, and oh my goodness, love was in the air, right? And you're just, you're just eat up with it. 
Now, back in my wife and I's day, years ago, before all the cell phones and internet, you know what we did? We would stay on the phone, that old rotary dial phone, right? Oh, I'm dating myself now. You dial that phone, and, you know, my house, my sister, you know, six years older than me, I'd pick up the phone to make a call to my girlfriend or somebody I was wanting to date, and she's on the phone talking to one of her boyfriends, right? And so there's that time you spend, and what did you talk about? You talked about your dreams, your passions, what life was going to be like. You talked about the things you enjoy. You talked about the things that hurt. You talked about the things you're struggling with. Because you know why you do that? It's because it was a relationship. And one day, that dating turned into an engagement. That engagement turned into a marriage. And those first couple years, you just poured out your dreams to one another. If you had a bad day at work, you'd come home and talked about it. And you unpacked it. Because you were in a love relationship and, and you wanted to do life together. Why is it when we approach God that we turn that off? And we start throwing God these, these leftovers of, of perfunctory prayers that mean nothing to us and, quite frankly, mean nothing to him. Is your prayer life vibrant? Are you talking with him? I'm not, I'm not saying using the phrasing you learned in church. I'm talking about truly talking with him. And by the way, it's a two-way street. God wants to speak to you as well. And how's he going to speak to you? In love, through his word, through the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, we've got to ask a question. Okay, let's get back to the context. We have wolves in sheep's clothing trying to creep into the church. Jude has identified them for us. And now Jude is counseling us on what to do about it. So the first questions that we phrase here is, is your faith growing and is your prayer life vibrant? What has that got to do with the wolves in sheep's clothing? It has everything to do with it because Jude says, if you're not settled in your faith, if you're not practicing your faith, if your character is not being, well, molded by Christ, then you are going to be an easy target for any false teacher who comes along. So what does Jude start with? Jude says, make sure you're walking with Christ and walking deeply. Make sure your faith is growing. Make sure your prayer life is alive. Notice what he says next. Notice what he says. He says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Does that mean we have to keep ourselves saved? Does that mean we, you know, we, we give our life to Christ, but then we have to keep that salvation? That's not what he's talking about. He's asking the question, or he's posing the premise, do you love God now more than you did when you first started? You see, there's an amazing thing that happens when you walk with Christ, or even in your marriage, when you're doing life with someone over a long period of time, when you're walking with Christ over a period of time, you know what happens? Your love and your devotion grow deeper. Grow deeper. When you're, when you're concerned about the things of Christ, when you, when you get up each day with a heart filled with gratitude, even before you get out of bed, you're grateful for a new day of life. And, and, and you're spending some time with him and you're, you're, you're wanting to strengthen your faith through his word, through, through the local fellowship of a church and engagement in that ministry. But your love for God should be growing deeper. And if it's not, then it could be, it could be that your devotion is being given to something else. It could be that you have another God in your life, God, little g. And man, there's so many of them vying for your attention. One of the things I loved about this past week and spending time with the teenagers is, number one, just how much energy they have. Man, I don't know how these kids do this, but man, we're out on the mission field. I'm out there with them. You know, we're shoveling mulch. I was at the pregnancy care center with a group, and when we're shoveling mulch and digging weeds, and man, I get done with that, and I go back to the church. I'm like, all right, good. Some little downtime. You know what they did? They went to the gym and played another three hours of basketball. And then after that, they went to worship. I don't know how they did it. I, I mean, man, their energy was endless. Is your love for God like that? Then it doesn't matter about the cancer diagnosis or the failing marriage, or the children that you've raised in the faith who are no longer following Christ. All those things are important. But there is nothing going to come between you and your love for God. There is no idol. There is no entertainment. There is no amount of money. There is nothing that will come between you and the God who pulled you out of darkness into light. 
That is the kind of love that Jude is describing here, that your love is growing deeper, not getting more shallow. I'm always concerned. When, when, a, when a person who places their faith in Jesus follows that with baptism and a couple of years later can't be found, I'm always really deeply concerned about that. I, I don't know if there's been a heart change there or not. I don't know if what they did in that moment that at the moment seemed legitimate, but now it seems like they have no care for God whatsoever. And every circumstance that I find, they have another God in their life. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be pornography. It could be anything. Anything that's taken your attention has become a God in your life. Maybe, maybe getting the big paycheck and you're climbing the corporate ladder. Maybe you're looking for the applause of people. I've got a book in my office. I'll be glad to give you a copy. The name of the book is When People Are Big and God Is Small. The whole premise of that book is that when people become gods in your life, pleasing people, trying to make sure that people like you, well, in that moment, God is not your God. The, the people in your life are, and you've given them that control. So is your faith growing? Is your prayer life vibrant? Is your love deepening? Look at this next one, verse 22. And this is where the twist comes. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Now, Jude, Jude is going to surprise us here. Because we would imagine that if you're dealing with a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, that you, know, you're, you need to deal harshly with that. You need to be angry about that. You need to confront that person with anger and you know, a good theological argument and get them out of your church. Well, that's not untrue because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said that if a brother or sister has sinned and is living in sin, that the church body has a responsibility to come to that brother or sister and we're operating as though they're a disciple of Christ. And we, we come to them and say, hey, you're not following Jesus. You're not being obedient in this. It's not to, to beat them over the head. It's to gain a brother or sister back in the right fellowship with Christ and the church. And so, so Jesus gives these steps there. But when you get to the last step, if, if the person you've been reaching out to will not turn away from their sin. In other words, they've heard your argument maybe multiple times. You've showed them God's word. They reject it. They, they, they're not convicted about what they're doing. They don't care about what God thinks about it. In their mind, they've somehow figured out how they've reconciled what God's Word says versus their lifestyle, so they don't really care. They have no intentions of coming back to church. They have no intentions of repenting. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, excommunicate. In other words, put them out of the church. Why would Jesus say that? Because they are not a follower of His. And their heart has never been changed, and everything in their life points to the reality that they're lost. Those pastors that I talk to, they say, I've got this person in my church, and they say they're a Christian, but man, they're tearing the church to pieces. And I look at that brother and go, what makes you think they're a Christian? So is Jews saying to us, we need to respond with anger and force, and we need to go after people? And by the way, the church has done that multiple times, and, and that's an equal failure when we don't operate in love? No, here's what Jude says. Jude says, have mercy. So, so Jude would say that we have mercy not only for those who are being influenced by wolves, but even the wolf itself. How do we do that? Notice what he says. He says, well, the first, the first, the, the first ring of people you need to, to reach out to and show mercy to are those who are in doubt. You see, false teachers begin to plant doubt. If you have a family member, I've got a family member, and I think she's been in just about every organized religion you can think of, cults included. And one of the reasons she's so easily swayed is because her love for God is not very deep. Her understanding of God's Word is very shallow. Her understanding of, of what is true and right is, is way off. And so every false teacher that comes into her life easily sways her. But there's those early moments of when that false teacher gets her attention that, that, that she's beginning to doubt what she knows to be true. Maybe things she's held as true all of her life, this false teacher is now beginning to influence her. What, what Jude says is, is for those who are beginning to doubt, for those who are beginning to doubt, you need to deal gently with them. You need to deal with them, but you need to deal gently. In other words, you need to go to them with love and kindness and mercy and help them to see 
not only the character flaws of the false teacher, but that they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. You have a responsibility to deal gently with them. And I've told you before, it's worth saying again, that everybody has doubts. Everyone has doubts. But when we turn those doubts inwardly and we don't talk about them, that's when they become very, very dangerous. And the false teachers are hoping, well, they're hoping to separate you from those who are telling you the truth. So we need to deal gently with those. So our mercy should be expanding as followers of Jesus. Our mercy should be broad. And the way we do that is we run to those who are being misled. We talk about their doubts. We do it with gentleness. But then there's a second group of people. Notice what he says. He says, first group of people are those who have some doubts. Well, let's have, a, let's have a conversation about those. Let's put those doubts on the table. Let's talk about them. Let's do it in gentleness. But look at verse 23, look at this. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So there's another group of people. They're a little deeper into the false teaching. And now they've begun to change their life and how they live based off of what the false teacher's telling them. He says, now these, these, if you deal gently with those who doubt, deal quickly with those who are in danger. So these people are in danger of now completely giving their life to a lie. And you have got to, you have got to get engaged and involved in that loved ones who's being misled. What's amazing to me, in all these churches that I've talked to that are in a death spiral, is that the person in the church who was influencing other people, they saw it happening, and here's what they did. They excused it away. Oh, it's no big deal. Oh, they're, they're well-meaning. Oh, they're a follower of Jesus. They, you know, they're not doing anything harmful. It's just, it's just they, they have some problems with the pastor. They have some problems with the direction of the church, and, and they're, just, they're just handling this their way. There's nothing really wrong with it, when in fact, they're gossiping, they're lying, their character tells you there's serious problems and everybody just explains it away as though there's no, no big deal. And then one day, they look around, they got five people in the building and they can't pay the power bill. And all along, they thought this was a sheep and it was actually a wolf. He says, deal gently with those who doubt. Deal quickly with those in danger. Those who are under the influence of a false teacher, you must, you must, you must confront and then there's one last group of people. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And then to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now, Jude, we draw, draw our attention to something very important here. He says, and he gives this illustration of the undergarment. The undergarment in that day was like their underwear. It's what they wore close to their body. And if we're going to deal gently with those who doubt and deal quickly with those in danger, he says you better deal carefully with those who are defiled. In other words, the false teacher himself. He says, you see, they've been defiled. They are practicing something completely opposite of Christianity. They are not a disciple of Christ. And, and, and yes, we need to confront. Yes, we need to tell them the truth. Yes, we need to be faithful with the gospel in that moment. What Jude says is a warning here. He says, you better be careful because the stains they have could easily become your stains. Their teaching could easily become your teaching. Instead of you trying to lead them to the truth, they can mislead you in the lies. Instead of, instead of being an example to them, you join in with them with the sake of, you know, helping them to see the truth. It, it, let me give you an illustration on that. Down through the years, I've heard both Young men and young women say these words to me. Well, yeah, I, I'm dating an unbeliever. You know, I, I'm dating someone who doesn't go to church, but, but pastor, I'm, I'm going I'm to convert them. I'm going I'm to get them to follow Jesus. I'm, I'm, God's going to use me as I date this unbeliever, as I join that unbeliever and their lifestyle, as I do the things the unbeliever is doing, I'm doing it to show love so that I can then lead that person to Christ. And you know what I say to that? It's a very technical theological word, hogwash. You know, I, I, would, I would like to say that 100% of the time that never worked, but I can almost say 100% of the time it didn't work. You know what happened? You know what happened. You know how the story ends? The person who was the, the believer, faithful in Jesus, you guess what happens? They, they're, they're misled in the falsehood rather than that person coming to faith. That's not a real shock to you, is it? Jude says right here, yes, we need to show mercy. Yes, we need to confront but you better understand that that false teacher has an agenda 
And if they can pull you down in the mud with them, oh, they'll certainly do it. So be careful with the undergarments stained by sin that you don't become stained as well. Your character, how you live your life, what comes out of your mouth, what comes out of your life is a direct reflection of what is in your heart. Don't let anybody tell you anything differently. I had a conversation with someone recently. And I want to share a little bit of it with you this morning because it may help some of you. I had a conversation not too long ago with a lady who's you know, up in her senior years now. And uh, she struggled with a lot of her life about whether she's a believer or not. She struggled with, am I truly a, a follower of Jesus? And she's wrestled with that for years. And so when I began to have the conversation with her, she was telling me that she didn't remember the church that she was in because she was younger when she placed her faith in Jesus. And she said, I don't remember the church. I don't remember the song that was playing. I don't remember the pastor. I don't remember what prayer I prayed. And for her, that was a source of doubt that maybe Maybe she didn't. Maybe because there's time, been times in her life where, where maybe she strayed away from Christ and wasn't following him closely. And so then she, she has this doubt in her head that maybe she's lost. So I, I looked at her and I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, at that moment, when you put your faith in Jesus, did your life change? In other words, you can't explain it, but you were not the same person after that as you were before. And with eyes bright and a smile on her face. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So when I first put my faith in Jesus, there were things I couldn't do anymore. There's people I couldn't hang out with. There's places I couldn't go anymore. And, and, and yeah, my life changed. And I had a smile on my face and I looked her dead in the eye and I said, let me tell you something. I don't care what song was playing. I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care if the steps had carpet on them or not. I don't care if it was in a jungle or in a church building. If your life changed, you are a child of God. Because that change doesn't come from the flesh. It only comes from the Spirit. So if you're wrestling with that today, if you're wrestling with what happened, did I do it right, let me ask you a question. I don't care about the day or the time. My concern is, is has your life changed? Do you have a new heart that comes out in a new life? And if you don't, the Bible describes you as lost. If you do, the Bible describes you as an adopted, born-again child of God. Now quit doubting and live it out. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.